You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning. My name is James Fields. I serve as the lead pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle, and it is a blessing to be with you here this morning, to see all of your smiling faces, um, some of your cold faces. I do apologize for the heat, but hopefully the Holy Spirit will warm this place up. Amen? Amen. All right. Um, let's go ahead and continue uh, with our, we're going to continue today with our Gospel of Matthew. We're looking at the Gospel of Matthew starting at verse 38, and we're going to end at verse 50. So if you can stand with me, um, that'd be great. We'd love for you to do that. We're going to start at verse 38 and then again read to verse 50. It reads as follows. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and settle there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will be, also be, with this evil generation. While he was speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and uh, and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Please pray with me. Father and God, we do thank you for this opportune time to read and to hear, heed your word. Father, we need you to show up. Because if you don't show up, there's no reason for us to gather. We thank you, God, that you have shown up. You've shown up through, through time and throughout history time and time again, but most, most importantly, you've shown up through your son. And Lord, we want to honor and glorify him. May your word be, uh, go forth and not come, uh, come back void. May some minds be transformed. May some souls be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, as always, I ask that you would take my little and make much of it. I don't have much to offer, God, but I pray that you will bless what I have for the blessing of your people and for, the, for us to continue in the mission that you have us on here at this church to bless South Louisville and beyond. To the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Can God be satisfied? Can God 
be satisfied. For me, the answer to this question came a long, long time ago. It came from, on the date was June 8th, 1942. The place was Oxford, England, and the location was the Church of St. Mary the Virgin. And at that place and at that time, the great theologian, historian, and author and preacher, I would argue, C.S. Lewis penned these words. He said, this, he said this in his sermon that later became his book, The Weight of Glory. He says this. He says, if God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. And I'm here to tell you, I don't know all the work that God is satisfied with. We'll find that at the day of judgment before the throne of grace. But there's four things I want to bring your attention to as we ponder this question and look at the work that God is satisfied with. The first thing is that he's satisfied with creation. Because in the very beginning in Genesis, he created it and he had an adjective that said it was good. The second thing that God is, is satisfied in the work that he's done is in creating a covenant between man and woman. He created, he created humanity and created everything that was good, but there was one thing that was lacking. Man needed a companion. He needed a, a helpmeet. He needed uh, one that was equal to him in essence and valuable to him um, as, an, as, an, as, an, as, an equal, um, as an equal before him. And God also created the institution that we now call marriage. But then there's also his son. His son, Jesus, and I want to go back and, and re remind us of what was said about Jesus in two sermons ago in Matthew chapter 12, verses 18, 18, through, 20, 18, 18 through 21. Listen to the words that God says about his son in these verses. He says, here is my servant whom I have chosen, my delight, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout. No one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. I think it's very important for us to be reminded of this um, identity of Christ, because the identity that Christ, that God has given Christ, the satisfaction that, he, that, that God has placed on Christ sets us up for our story very well. We have to remember that God doesn't call his son out there to prove anything. He, pull, he puts him out there already beloved, already accepted, already cared for, already approved by God, but still being decided upon if to believe upon that truth by man. So we pick up in verse 38. It says, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Now, in your, you have an outline in your, in your bulletin there. You see the first outline point there is that this is an unrighteous demand. And the reason that this is an unrighteous demand is because they demand for a sign as if God hadn't already, as if they hadn't already seen enough already. They wanted more than just what God had to offer. Think about that for a moment. Jesus has already proclaimed himself in verse 6 that he is greater than the temple. 
He's already said in verse 8 that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's already healed two people. Verse 13, he healed a, a man who had a paralyzed hand on the Sabbath. And then in verse 22, he healed a demon-possessed man who was both blind and mute. You see, the problem here is not that they are asking for a sign. The problem here is that they are trying to test the Lord God himself. And this is what God himself has strictly prohibited, that you shall not test the Lord your God. What does it mean to test God? What does it mean when you test God? To test God means when testing God is when doubt leads to, de to demand God to prove something of himself. Testing is when doubt leads to demand um, that's, that's something of God in order for him to prove himself to us. It is to manipulate a situation in an attempt to coerce God into fulfilling and fulfilling into letting us know that his promise, uh, into fulfilling his promise is evil. It is a manipulation. It is a testing that stems from doubt that leads to a demand, something of God to prove himself to us. This is a truly an unrighteous demand that these um, people are offering because God himself has given everything they needed to see that Jesus truly is who he said he is. This is a good reminder for us, even today, that they, wanting to see a sign from God is not a problem. You see, the problem for them was not that they needed a, a sign. The problem was that they needed a savior. It, it wasn't that they needed to have another miracle for God to prove himself. What they needed was a Messiah. And I don't know if you've ever done this in your life or not, but there are times and times in our lives that maybe we have said this, these, this same, have come to God in the same similar vein. If I could just see a miracle, God, if I could just see what I want to see, then I will believe. If I could just see a real miracle, then I could really believe in you, God. But here's the problem. For many of us in this day who are blood-brought Christians, we have plenty of evidence we have plenty of evidence of, of, of Jesus being our, our greatest miracle and our greatest treasure. Jesus' birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and even the church, the ecclesia that we see scattered all across the world today is evidence of God's grace. You see, the problem that they were struggling with is, is they were asking for more evidence, but they didn't, were not willing to accept the evidence that God had already provided for them. They wanted more. It's not enough, God. I need more. I need, I, need to, I need to understand more. Again, the problem here is not doubt, but it's, it's, it's doubt that leads to the denial and to lead to a demand of God to prove himself to us. This is a good reminder of how God leads us. God leads us as a car um, with headlights. Many of you will be traveling this, this upcoming week for Thanksgiving. And when you start traveling, one of the things you're going to notice is you're going to get on the highway. And if you were traveling from Louisville, Kentucky to, let's say, uh, Princeton, New Jersey, where I just came from, when you get on the highway, you're not going to see Princeton, New Jersey when you first get on the highway. The first thing you're going to see is probably Frankfurt. Frankfurt is about 35 miles away. Because uh, then the next, when you reach Frankfurt, then you're going to probably see Lexington. 
And then after Lexington, you're going to see the next closest town. The reason for that is because God, God leads us in a very similar way. God gives us enough to let us know that we're still headed in the right direction. He gives us enough evidence of his grace. He gives us enough evidence of his power. He gives us enough evidence of who he is to let us know you're still on the right road and continue to remain faithful. He leads us like a car with headlights at night. He shows you enough to allow you to keep on going down the right road. Don't demand that God shows you an entire road. Entire road isn't for you to see. Trust the, the extent that God has given you and trust the extent that at the, 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 the signs on the road that let you know you're headed, you're still headed in the right direction. Listen, I, this, I, I've been pastor of this church for about four months now. There's, there's a lot of things that I still want to see develop. There's a lot of things that I still want to see grow. There's a lot more things I want to do. But you know what I'm doing every day? I'm trusting in the evidence that God gives me every single day. When I look at the beautiful faces standing before me, that's the evidence of God's grace. When I think about trunk or treat, when I think about the women's Christmas dinner coming up, when I see the men fellowshipping through fantasy football and, and having um, discipleship opportunities and people joining membership classes, God hasn't shown me the entire role, but I'm looking at the evidence that he's showing before me. And I encourage you to do the same thing in your life too. Don't test God. God isn't a God that needs to be tested. He is a God that's proven himself time and time again that he is trustworthy and that he is faithful. Amen? Verse 39 reads, He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign. Now, what is he saying here? Remember, we talked about this a lot, about evil. Evil is not just um, the absolute presence of evil. It, it, is the, it, is, it is not just the absolute presence of evil. It is the absolute withholding of what is good. An evil and adulterous generation. This is referring to their unfaithfulness. This is actually talking to about spiritual adultery. That you say that you are with me, but you are hooking up with other deities that are not me. So Jesus, knowing who he is, knowing that he's beloved, knowing that he's accepted by God, he's willing to call out the sin in, in, these, in these scribes and the Pharisees. Not so that they can feel condemned, but hopefully so that they can repent. He says this, he almost, Jesus almost contradicts himself in verse 39. He says, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given it, except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. I love this. I love this. That these people don't deserve a sign. God knows exactly what they're doing. He, he's looking at them and saying, listen, you are demanding that I prove myself to you. And I've done it time and time again. I don't need to prove myself to you. But let me point in history where God has proven himself to you. So he points them to the Old Testament. And he points them to Jonah and the faithfulness that is there. Notice what he says in verse 40. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish, fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. Now, listen, I've, I've been tripped up by this growing up as a Christian because I've been trying to figure out, man, was Jesus really in the grave three nights, three days and three nights because he died on Friday around three o'clock and then he was in the tomb Saturday and then he woke up early Sunday morning. So was that, was that really three days? I mean, the, the math just don't add up. It doesn't make sense. Like, Jesus, were you in three days or you're not? Like, just say two and a half days and I'll be okay. Or one and a half day. I, I don't know. But three days, oh, come on, you're confusing me. 
When we see this term three days and three nights, especially in the, in the scriptures, we have to understand that this is a span of time. It is a span of time. It's a duration of time that is used. Uh, it's, it's, it, is a, it is a terminology that is to describe a span of time that is covered all of one day and parts of two others, but no more than three days. The, the, a good analogy of this is in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verses 12 and 13. I'm not going to go there, but if you, in your own spare time, in your own quiet time, go there this week. David actually um, talks about uh, the fact they find a man after David has a huge uh, victory over um, his enemy. Um, they find a man who's been in the desert three days and three nights. So this was a term. This was a, this was a terminology that was common within the Jewish culture and within the Jewish uh, vernacular as they describe these things. And it's a, it's a, it describes a span of time that covered one, all of one day, parts of two others, but no more than three days. He says this in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because, check this out, they repented at Jonah's preaching. Notice the denial. Notice their denial here. They, the, what Jesus is telling them is this, listen, Jonah was in the fish for three days, and the, and the fish vomited him out at the command of God. I'm going to be in the earth for three days, and the earth is going to vomit me out because I have no, I have no association to, to have with death except that God will place the sins of the, of the world on my shoulders for a temporary moment, for three days and three nights. What, what he's showing us here is that Jesus' own resurrection would not be enough evidence for them to believe. The fact that Jesus himself would be resurrected from the dead. No one in this history of the world has been resurrected from the dead. But Jesus Christ will be resurrected from the dead, and even his own resurrection will not be enough for them to come to conviction and to repentance before God. Notice with me, notice with me two things in this. That in both instances, with the fish and also with the grave, they both were prepared by God for the purposes of God, for the people of God. I love that. This, is a, this seems like a death situation. This seems like uh, God sending both men into the most, uh, most, high, the most unlikely and, and undesirable place that anyone would go. Who wants to go in the belly of a fish? Notice it doesn't say whale, it says fish. I can't even imagine how big that fish was, or I can't imagine how small Jonah is. I don't know which one is, which one is truer, but one is true. But even in their places of despair, and even in the places that God prepared them to go, God is the one who delivered them. And upon their deliverance, they came, and, they, and, and Jonah came to the people of Nineveh, and he preached God's word to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was not a nice country. Nineveh was a country that did not know the Lord and acted as if and proudly um, stood against God and everything that he commanded and wanted um, to, to see into, in his kingdom. It was an evil and adulterous nation, but yet they repented and they turned and they looked and they were reminded by the word of God, of the nature of God, and they repented as a result. He says at the verse 30, at 41b, at the end of uh, verse 41, he says, and look, something greater than Jonah is here. 
You see, upon Jonah's deliverance, the Ninevites responded with repentance. But even the Israelites in Jesus' day were still responding with, with rejection. You see, these Gentiles, this evil and adulterous nation called Nineveh, recognized and responded to the truth about God when it was presented to them. I think that's a good place for us to consider and to ask ourselves, how have you responded? Or how are you responding to the evidence and truth that you have set before you? How are you responding? How are you responding to the truth and the evidence that God has placed before you? Are you demanding more of a sign? Are you saying, God, what you've done is not enough? I need more, I need more, I need more, I need more. And if that's you, there's hope. Because today you can look to God and say, God, I repent. I don't need another sign. I don't need another miracle. God, I need you. I used to tell my Princeton students this all the time in college ministry. We want to not just look at God's hands. We want to look at God's face. We don't want to just look at God's hands and what he can give us. Give me, God. Bless me, God. Give me, God. I I need more, God. I don't have enough. We want to look at his face. Because any gift that comes from God is lesser than value than God himself. God is the greatest treasure. He is the greatest gift. The gift is God. Not prosperity. Not money. Not happiness. Not satisfaction. Not getting what you want. The gift is God. And I pray that we will be a church that don't just look at God's hands all the time. I, listen, if you, have, if you have needs, go to your father, go to him and gracious and let your request be known, but make your request known knowing that the gift, it doesn't outweigh the value of who God is. And when you get the gift, you don't have to turn your back on the one who's giving you that gift. It's like your kids on Christmas getting the Christmas gifts and running to their corners with their treasures and forgetting about you, the parent who Still got layaway bills and credit card bills you got to pay off for the gifts you're enjoying. I've done it. I've seen it. I, I'm going to experience it in about a month. You will too. <laughs> the gift is God. The gift is always, the, the gift, the giver is almost always more worthy and much more precious than simply the gift. Notice what he continues to say. Verse 42, he says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and look, something greater than Solomon is here. Now, I, I, I normally don't do this, but actually Nick inspired, inspired me to do this because Nick always has great slides. I was like, man, I want to have a great slide. So I'll, this may not be a great slide, but I'm going to try my best. I was thinking like, man, okay, this queen of the south, this queen of the south is Queen Sheba. It's recorded in 1 Kings. Um, the story of this is for, recorded in 1 Kings, um, I believe it's chapter 7, if I'm not mistaken. Let me double check my, my reference. It's 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 6 through 9, where it says, Queen of Sheba came to, um, came to the nation of Israel to see Solomon and his splendor because she heard through the grapevine, she heard how great and, and wonderful it is. And she said it came from the ends of the earth. So I said, man, how far did she come? So let's check it out. Let's see how far she came. That's my slide, hopefully. Maybe it doesn't show up. Yes, whoo, I did it. 
So here, modern day, the, 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 the place that she, uh, Sheba, she was a part of the uh, Sabians. This was in south, the southwest um, nation of um, um, Saudi, current day Saudi Arabia is current day Yemen. So if you walk this from where it said Yemen all the way up to where, uh, let's say Capernaum. Well, actually, that's wrong. I'm sorry. Maybe I didn't do that right. That's embarrassing. Sorry. <laughs> I didn't do it right. I'll try again next time, y'all. She didn't walk to him in the Capernaum, but she walked a long way. <laughs> Nevertheless, I continue. From Yemen to Capernaum is about uh, 25, 25, uh, 2,500 miles in, in, total, in total distance. For her to go from Yemen, let's say, to um, Jerusalem or, or nearby Jerusalem, it would be about 2,500 miles. The, the equivalent to that, I tried to figure out, okay, well, what would that look like for our current day and age? If, if you were to take and walk from here, Louisville, Kentucky, and walk all the way to Oakland, California to see James Westbrook and his, and his church plant out there, it still wouldn't be enough. Walking from here to Oakland, California would be about 23, 20, I'll say 2,400 miles. It would be about 100 miles less. So this, thank you, um, this, this woman, this, this woman saw and heard about the majesty, the beauty of God, and she went to go look and, and see God's, what God was doing in the life of Solomon, and she walked over 20, 2,500 miles to see and to witness what God was doing. This was not just something that just, it was happenstance. Notice what she says. I think I have this first Kings chapter 10. Notice what she says um, as she talks about her experience. She says this, this is the queen of Sheba. She said to the king, King Solomon, the report I heard in my own country about my own words, about your words and about your wisdom is true. But I didn't believe the reports until I, it, I came and saw it with my own eyes. Indeed, I was not even told half. Your wisdom and prosperity far exceed the report I heard. How happy are your men? How happy are these servants of yours who always stand in your presence hearing your wisdom? Blessed be the Lord your God. He delighted in you and put you on the throne of Israel. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to carry out justice and righteousness. So notice this denial that this queen, this, this pagan queen, Queen of Sheba of the Sabaeans in southwest Arabia, present-day Yemen, honors God by traveling over 2,500 miles to see and to witness what God is doing through the servant Solomon. And yet, listen what Jesus says. He says, listen, and even in her efforts, there is something more greater than Solomon that is, right, that is before you. You see, both people were greeted by the very wisdom of God. The queen came to see the wealth and wisdom of Solomon, and she responded in praise to God. In comparison, we see that a pagan honors God, but his own people refuses. His own people refuses. And this is not just a refusal because they don't want to. Remember, this is a denial. Jesus is doing some impossible things before their eyes. He is healing. He is redeeming. He is preaching. He is proclaiming. He is exemplifying the character and nature of God more so than anyone else has done throughout the history of our world. 
Lastly, notice with me the trifecta that Jesus creates. <laughs> Jesus says in verse 6, remember we talked about that in verse 6 and verse 8 of chapter 12. He says, listen, he says uh, he is greater than the temple. And then in verse 8, he says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. In this verse with Jonah, he says that something greater than Jonah is here, verse 41. And then in verse 42, he says that something greater than Solomon is here. Do you notice the trifecta? He's greater than a temple. He's our greatest, he's our greatest priest. He's greater than Jonah. He is uh, greater than Jonah. He is our great prophet. And lastly, something greater than Solomon is here. He is our great king. Jesus is helping us to see the trifecta of his deity as prophet, priest, and king. He's saying, listen, if you think that temple is something, it is nothing. I'm greater than that temple. I don't just gather people to myself for them to worship God. I am God incarnate. And if you worship me, you worship God. You think, you think Jonah was great? You thought what he did in the, in the belly of the fish was good? Wait till my resurrection. Even death itself cannot hold me. You think Solomon and all his splendor and all his wonder and all his wealth, you think that's something to, be, to shout about? That's something good. But I am the greatest king to ever walk the earth. And my reign and my rule is not temporary, but it is eternal. Because forever I will sit at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is our great prophet. Jesus is our great priest. Jesus is our great king. This is evidence for you and encouragement for you in the person and work and the deity of Christ. Amen. I have to admit, it gets a little tricky right now. <laughs> and it seems like the next part doesn't fit with uh, what, we're, what we're talking about, but it does. Um, starting in verse 43, read these words of Jesus. It says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. Then it says... I'll go back to my house. Circle my if you have that in your bulletin, if you don't mind. I'll go back to my house where I came from. Returning, it finds the house, underline these words, vacant, uh, vacant, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven more other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and settle down there. If you can circle, they enter and then circle, settle down, settle down as well. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. And that's how it will be with this evil generation. Now, what is Jesus talking about here? Jesus is not just talking about um, exorcisms and things of that nature. Um, he's already said that he is um, the strong man. And he, what he said in, uh, in last week's sermon was that if, if Satan is responding to my words, I must be stronger than Satan. That you can't go into a man's house and cause, cause things to, uh, cause havoc in a man's house unless you first bind up the strong man. Because no man is not going to let you come into his house willfully and tie him up and just do whatever you want to his family or to his possessions. No man will do that. But if you are seeing, if you are seeing the kingdom being rocked, if you are seeing demonic, um, demonic spirits fleeing, then, then something greater must be here. In our two previous times, we saw everything that they denied. They denied the sign of the prophet. They denied the, the sign of, 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 uh, of Solomon, that, some, that something greater than Solomon was here. But here we finally see what they accept. We see what they accept. Notice with me in verse 
43. It says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest, but finds, doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from returning. It finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. I ask you to underline those words because it's very important. Here's what this evil generation is accepting. They're accepting what we now call present-day moralism. And here's what moralism says. Moralism says, I can reform my life on my own. I got this. I recognize and see the mountains that, that God has placed before me. I see the hindrance in my life. I see even the sin that you may call in my life. But I can reform. I can change. I can make changes in my life that will cause me to be better off um, with, uh, without God and without anyone else. I can do the reforming myself. It's a great book that I've been going through a couple of guys with um, recently. It's called Unlimited Grace by Brian Chappell. It's one of my favorite books. Um, and hopefully, I think in, uh, in the spring, maybe we'll be able to read it together as a church uh, in a men's discipleship meeting um, after Easter. But in that book, um, he talks about this. Um, he has a quote that I love that he talks about this aspect of moralism um, and, and what it means to, to try to live this moralistic life uh, without God. Um, he says this. He says, Jesus deserve no punishment for sin. He says, by reflecting God's care, our Savior died on a cross, suffering for the sins of all who are willing to admit that they need his help. God doesn't force his care on people. If you don't think you need his help or don't want it, you are at liberty to reject his provision for your sins. But here's the problem. Those who try to make themselves acceptable to God by their own efforts are comparable to someone trying to clean a, clean a white shirt with muddy hands. Unholy people can't make themselves acceptable to a holy God. That's why God provides the grace of Jesus Christ for us to be right with God. Jesus had to suffer the penalty our sin deserves. I love this because it reminds us that self-righteous moralism is empty and it only drives you further from God. It is a desire to handle evil on your own, to sweep out evil from your life, and to put things in order in your own strength. And I love how Brian Chappell describes it. He says, it's like you trying to clean a white shirt with muddy hands. And I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've ever tried to clean a white shirt with muddy or dirty hands, but that's near impossible. Because I don't care how careful you're trying to be, I don't care how meticulous you're trying to move things or do things, something's going to get on your shirt, simply because your hands are dirty. I love this because it reminds us that religious devotion will leave our hearts void, empty, and unfulfilled because it focuses on an outer reformation and then neglects our greatest need, the reformation of the heart. Notice with me, notice with me the audacity of this demon. Look with me in verse 44. It says, then it says, I'll go back to my house. I don't know about you, but that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of intrusive language. My house? Really? You created that, that soul? You created that person? My house? It's a good reminder of, uh, to us that Satan always seeks to control God's creation. It's been that way from the very beginning. Remember Genesis chapter 4, where Cain was, was upset with God because God was, was not pleased or acceptable to his gift? 
You remember the wise words, the prophetic words that God spoke to, that, to Cain in his anger? He said this in Genesis chapter 4, 6 and 7. He says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious and why do you look so despondent? If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do, do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Notice how sin is described. Sin is described as an animal, as if it's the, it's the predator and you're the prey. It's crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Jesus said it best in John 10, 10. He says, the, the, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. There's nothing that Satan wants to do more than to destroy your life. And he'll use any means possible to do it. Notice this false ownership that he places. I'll go back to my house. And we'll notice when he goes back to his house. Let me stop right there for a minute because, I, I, yeah, let me stop there. My house. I, this, this reminded me of something this week. My daughter is getting of dating age. She's 11 now. Woohoo! I'm thankful for that. I was just thinking about that. You know, the Lord reminded me of this this week because, I mean, I, I would be <laughs> um, very upset, I'll say, if, if some knucklehead little boy come up to my daughter talking about that's mine. Like, listen, you ain't raised her. You ain't cared for her. You ain't provided for her. You ain't there when she's crying. You ain't there when she's... If some knucklehead little boy comes to me talking about this is mine, as if you have some, some covenantal right towards my daughter. This is the same way and the same thing that we see with Satan. Satan is making um, presumptuous, um, thing, uh, presumptuous conclusion. He, he is taking this ownership. He's taking this kind of aspect of ownership without any type of covenant that, any type of covenant that he's trying to make with you, similar to dating relationships, to be honest with you, to some degree. You want all the benefits. You want all the benefits of relationship, but you don't want to have the responsibility and the covenant of being together. Death do you part. My house. He comes back and refine, returns to the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Now notice, it's nothing wrong with having your house swept and put in order. The problem with here is vacant. It's empty. It, 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 the, spirit, the, the spirit has been thrown out. It has gone out by the very power of God, but it remains empty and yet unfulfilled. Part of our confession before God is to confess the Lord Jesus Christ. The second part is to submit to the spirit for the infilling of the spirit of God. So that as, as J, uh, first John says that greater is he that is in me than he that is in, within the world. God puts his spirit in you so that you have something greater inside of you than what left out of you. It's the beauty of the gospel. It's the beauty of transformation. That God puts his spirit inside of us so that we won't be vacant. We won't be empty. He puts his spirit inside of us to sweep up and to clean up and to put in order that which God wants to put in order inside of us. Beloved, you have the spirit of God upon you in order to clean you up and to rectify you. I love what uh, Brian Chapel says about this too. It's later in his book. He says these words. 
He says, he, talking about Jesus, he does not urge us to climb to heaven on our pile of good works. The gospel message from the earliest page of scripture urges us to trust that God will provide what he requires. The religiosity, legalism, or moralism that, urge, that, that argues that we must earn or maintain the love of God by our holy striving actually dishonors the holiness of God. His holy standards are as high as the heavens. His purity is beyond the hygiene of our best spiritual regimens. Pretending that our efforts meet his criteria diminishes him. Unless God provides the holiness that we, he requires, we have no chance of achieving it. The good news is that God has provided the holiness that we need through the work of his son. Our job is not to repeat, repeat Christ's work, but to honor it. While grace destroys confidence in the adequacy of our efforts to earn God's love, it simultaneously stirs within us the de desire to please him. Devotion to God results not as a mean of qualifying for his affection, but as a mean, means of expressing ours. This is um, page 38 from that, that same book. This is a good reminder for us that legalism, moralism, is demonic in nature. Legalism, moralism, is demonic. There's no way for you to earn any right or any merit before God. It is equivalent to you trying to clean a clean white shirt with dirty hands. It's equivalent to you dishonoring and diminishing the work that Christ has provided. Remember what we said from the very beginning. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. Look to the work of the cross. Look to the gospel. Look to Jesus. Because in that work, God is satisfied. And because he is satisfied with it, we too can be satisfied with the work that God has done on our behalf. Amen. Half-hearted repentance without a new commitment will not last. It will never last. Let's finish up with verses 46 through 50. After Jesus tells them what they've accepted, this moralism or legalism, that legalism is demonic in nature, he then goes on to the second part, the last part in 46 through 50. He says this, while he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. I love verse 50 because Jesus takes the time to add sisters to that, to that last part to remind us the um, value of um, our sisters, our, our mothers, our wives, our grandmothers, our aunts, um, our uh, gmas, whatever you may call them. Um, I love that Jesus, Jesus took the time to not just talk about mothers and brothers, but also sisters here in verse 50. Notice with me in verse 47, he says, look, your mother and your brothers are here. Notice there's no mention of father. There's no mention of, of, of Jesus' father in this. And it may be for a couple of reasons. Some scholars believe that Jesus died. The last time we hear about um, Joseph is actually um, when Jesus goes to the temple and he's lost at the age of 12. The other reason why we may see that, that no father is mentioned 
is because now Jesus, if, if, if Joseph is not around, if he's died or if he's abandoned his family, now Jesus as the oldest son is responsible for his family. So you can see the conundrum. Jesus is out preaching and having his focus on the kingdom, and his family comes and says, hey, shouldn't you be at home? <laughs> shouldn't you be with us? You see, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him until after his resurrection. So they may have come to take him home quietly. There go Jesus, acting crazy. We got to go get him. Making a fool of himself again. Come home, Jesus. Stop doing what you're doing. And Jesus takes the time in this, in this situation. He takes the time to make, have a poignant message towards us. And that message is simple is that we need an intimate relationship compelled by inner transformation. That those who do God's will, God's way, are those who are part of God's family, united around the gospel. I love this verse because it reminds us that we should not assume that our formal affiliation with the people of God or our expertise in the scripture somehow makes us acceptable to God or provides or proves our salvation. Jesus' messianic mission takes priority over family loyalties. Jesus valued his spiritual relationship with his disciples above his physical relationships with his own family. I love this. Um, many of you this week are going to be going to Thanksgiving, and you're going to go to homes that may or may not have. Obviously, it will be family there, but it may not be God's family there. Here's a prayer that I want you to, to, to take with you to that table. Father, every year I come, may one more be added to your family. Father, every year I come, every year I come to this table, Father, save, save one, save two. May, may one more person at this table be a part of your family, not just my family, but may they be a part of your family. You see, family relationships are great, and Jesus is not downplaying that because he took care of his mother even at the cross when he was suffering the most painful death. He took care of his mother at the cross. His brother and his mothers were there at, at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down in Acts 1. So Jesus took care of his family. He, 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 he provided for them, but he's saying the kingdom of God precedes even family ties. So let's pray that even this week. God, add one. It may be a little one, it may be a big one, maybe a new one, maybe an old one. I'm thankful that this year, when I go back to Michigan, I do have one that's been added. My father-in-law, we've been praying for him, my wife and I, for a long time, 13 years of marriage. And I think two years ago, maybe two years ago, he came to faith in Jesus. It's been a hard road, don't get me wrong. <laughs> but it's a road that I would take time and time again and say, yes, brother, you are a part of this kingdom. Is he perfect? Is he doing everything he should? He is, um, he is wonderfully and beautifully broken before God, and he's learning to rely on that great, his brokenness in, in midst of the grace of God through the family of God. And this year, I'm praying the same thing. God, add one. Add one. It may be a niece. It may be a nephew. It may be, may be a, a brother-in-law, a sister-in-law. It may be a cousin. It may be just someone that comes by that I don't even know. God, add one more to your family. God is about creating and expanding his family through the work of his son, the complete finished work of his son. Who's in God's family? 
Those who have responded to Jesus' call to turn from their sins, trust his wonderful message of forgiveness, and follow him, those people will have a place within the family of God, within the people of God. Jesus invites us to rest in him, the Lord of the Sabbath, who is altogether righteous, and he is God's righteous, righteousness for you. We take a meal every week called, called communion, where we take this bread and we take this wine to remind us of the sufficiency of the work that Christ has done on our behalf. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke. He says, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Notice that he took the bread and he broke it to symbolize his own brokenness that he would experience on the cross in order that we might be fed and that we might be fulfilled. In the same way, he took the cup and blessed it, said, this is my new covenant for you. Drink, um, drink the new covenant of the wine that, that I've provided by my blood. So every week as a gift, we come before the communion table and we take a part of the bread, the broken bread, and we take a part of the crushed grapes that have been provided and fermented into juice or wine to remind us of the brokenness that Christ has done on our behalf. If you are not a Christian, this is a great day for you to accept Christ, to look to him anew, to, to be reminded and to accept and not to deny what God has done for you. The evidence is there. We're not asking you to believe just an arbitrary gospel. It's a historical fact of Jesus coming and dying and resurrecting. And one day he'll come again. Our prayer is that you'll be included in that number. This is a family meal, so at this time, if you are not a Christian, you honor God most by just staying where you are. But listen to the songs, and if you have questions about what this means to be saved or to know Jesus for yourself, come talk to myself or uh, Nick after the service. We would love to talk to you. Will you pray with me? I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.